0: foster care, and on Pella journey with Jason and Amanda Palmer. We like to talk about foster care and adoption and anything related. We tell stories about foster kids, bio kids, adoptive kids. We talk to caseworkers and anybody involved in the foster and adoptive system. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us. You can reach us at fosteruj at gmail.com or check us out on our website at fostercarenation.com. Hey there, Foster Care Nation! Welcome back. This week we've got a great episode for you. This week I have to make a, an apology as well. I introduced our guest this week as Mr. Nick Sotelo. The truth is, this is not Mr. Nick Sotelo. This is Doctor Nick Sotelo. Nick has been a counselor for over twenty years, and I've gotten to know him as a friend. So if it sounds like I'm not giving him the respect due, just know that he's a friend of mine, and that's why I forget to call him Doctor all the time. Dr. Nick works with the Youth Correctional Facility at the state of Oregon. He has a lot of great experience and a lot of great wisdom and answers to bring to us. He also has a podcast, and if you haven't heard it, you need to go over and bookmark that right now. It's called The Upgraded Life with Dr. Nick Sotelo. You can find him on Spotify and iTunes and anywhere else that you find your podcast. And if you're an iTunes user, be sure and go by and leave him a five-star rating and review on his podcast. And leave one on our podcast as well. Now let's get to the show. Hi, and welcome back to Foster Care, an <laughs> unparalleled journey with Jason and no Amanda today. She's out running some errands that came up that had to be taken care of last minute. And so it's just me today. I am here with a friend of mine, Mr. Nick Satello. He has worked with the Oregon Youth Authority the uh, as a treatment services su- supervisor for the last 21 years. I met Nick in a dad's group that I'm a part of over at the dad edge Alliance. And I've known him for a while. He is a uh, commander with the uh, group as well. Am I actually, and we both have been involved. Um, well, I've been in it for four years. I'm not real sure how long Nick has been, been in, in the group, but I know it's been uh, probably about two years. So we, uh, we kind of met over there and I got on a, on one of the call teams they have that had Nick on it and said, hey, I think this guy has a story to tell. Turns out I was wrong. He has several stories to tell. How you doing today, Nick?
1: I'm doing well, Jason.
0: Thanks for having me on. Hey, glad to have you. It was, uh, it was kind of an interesting chance meeting that we should meet up the way that we did and, and find out that there were so many different pieces of our lives that are actually in common there, especially around the foster care world. So, I mean, we can start all over the place here. You know, I know that you work with the Oregon Youth Authority and you deal with a lot of kids who, uh, who are in the justice system, obviously, and a large percentage of them come through the foster care system. The numbers of kids in care who end up dealing with law enforcement years later is a pretty significant number. Would you say you've seen that play out in your world?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't have the, the hard number, um, so to speak, from our agency. I could get it. Um, I could tell you exactly how many kids uh, that we currently have in care and custody that have a foster care background, uh, but it's high. I mean, I, I would say it's at least 70% of, of the, the, the kids that come to us at state-level corrections at some point in their life have had an, an out-of-home placement and or a foster care placement.
0: Why do you think that is? Because again, I don't want to feed into any, anything that any of the the wildness that I've seen on the internet, because everything's a conspiracy once you get on Facebook, but the truth is, is that that happens. So why, why do you see in your experience? Because I know you deal with some mental health issues there and you get to, to, to really dive into those, uh, those lives pretty deeply. Why do you think that is, that's that seems to be such a integral piece of kids who end up in uh in some sort of state correction. Sure,
1: and I'll I'll try to answer that question in, in a couple different layers. And the first layer is what we know or what the criminologists tell us about the factors that seem to be common amongst uh, people that wind up in, in corrections. So that's kind of where I'll start. So the question is, why do so many uh, foster kids wind up in corrections, both? The first level would be what we call juvie. It's usually county-level juvenile corrections. And then you have state-level corrections when the juvenile department goes in front of a judge and says, you know, we've exhausted the resources available to us in the city and county, and we're recommending a state-level commitment. And then after that, if we aren't able to turn them around at state-level youth corrections, and then a high percentage of adult inmates, adult offenders, in Oregon they call them adults in custody, uh, also will have, uh, you know, a foster care background. So where I want to start is just discussing what's known as the, the the eight criminogenic risk factors. And so this is what the, the criminologists have, have uh, fed back to us. When somebody winds up in corrections, uh, chances are they have a combination of these eight risk factors. So I'm just going to list them out for you, Jason, if that, if that works.
0: There we go. Go for it, man. Okay.
1: So they have, you know, and in, in just for folks that are, that are watching or listening to this, my background also is in, in counseling and mental health. And uh, I have a, a PhD in counseling. So I'm going to kind of interpret these things um, in, in the way that makes the most sense to me as a professional in the field. So the first criminogenic risk factor is labeled as antisocial personality or temperament. Now, this is where I'm going to qualify. That is th- this is probably trauma. And I know that you just had a, um, a clinician on your show, Jason, that talked uh, quite a bit about trauma and trauma-informed care. So if you have a traumatic background, if you've been physically abused or sexually abused, you're going to, chances are that you're going to develop what in the mental health field we call a disorder, right? So that first one says uh, antisocial personality or temperament. It, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you to, to disregard that label and just hear that this person has been abused and has, has trauma active in their, in their psyche. Does that make sense,
0: Jason? That makes a lot of sense.
1: Right. Um, and then because of that, the next one is called antisocial cognition. So the way that they think right? So there's kind of your, your natural personality or temperament. The next one is antisocial cognition again. So if you've been abused, you've been neglected. Well, the way that you think about the world is going to be skewed, right? You're not going to see adults in the case of children. You're not going to see adults as uh, people that can be trusted because the adults in their lives for the most part have proven otherwise. Um, And then the next one is antisocial companions. Right. And so, you know, peer groups, who are these kids going to gravitate towards in their in their neighborhoods and in their schools and whatnot? Well, they're probably going to gravitate towards other kids like them. Is that their fault? Is that their their willful choosing? I'm going to argue probably not. It's just what makes sense to them, given their their background and how they've been raised thus far. The next one is, is family stressors. And when you peel this one back, what you're going to find is um, these kids often have family members people, or people that are living in their house under their roof, whatever that looks like for them, that have gone to prison, right? That's, that's what we're talking about here in terms of family stressors. So um, somebody that's attached to them in a caregiver role uh, at some point in time themselves has, has been to prison. So they call those the the big four. That if you have those you know uh, those four things active in your life, chances are you're going to run into the system at some point. The remaining four are kind of the things that may or may not be part of um, a corrections kid's background. But we'll take a look at them. Substance abuse, um, not much going on in terms of education, not much interest. They don't see the value in, in school or a high school diploma. Uh, same thing. They don't they don't see themselves. In a job or career, so there's there's kind of low motivation for those things, and then we add and this is kind of a, an interesting one when you ask um, them how how they use their free time, and they're less likely to to identify like a pro social way of using free time, meaning you know be playing team sports or being involved in um, 4H or scouts or any of those things they're 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 not very likely to to identify those types of things as uh, how they use their free time right they're going to say things like hanging out kicking it and and that type of a deal so those are the the eight criminogenic risk factors that tend to be part of most any kid that winds um you know finds their way to the uh, correction side of things and i would say that a lot of these things are active in, in foster care, uh, uh, kids as well. So Jason, you, you have the background in foster care when you heard those eight things, you know, what, did those ring true or, you you know, what, what
0: commonalities did, came up for you? You know, the truth is, is that we deal mostly with younger kids. Yeah. We've only had one teen come through our house and, um, that was just not a good fit. Um, so we, you know, that some of those are kind of harder to judge, Sure, you know, it's, but I, I find the the, um, the pro-social I, idea really interesting because I see some of that in, in a lot of kids that I know. Some of my own older kids who have that as, as kind of the way that they see things, you know, hanging out with friends, just chilling and all that. That's right. something that I see a lot of in, in my older kids. Of course, I think part of that's just the age and, and that generation sure. and really being kind of disconnected with the direction they want to travel. Right. And, and so I find that really interesting. That's going to be something that, that'll be in my head for the rest of the day thinking about, <laughs> okay. but, but the, the trauma piece, the abuse piece, the, you know, whether it's physical, sexual, mental, um, or even abandonment pieces, I see that a lot on a lot of kids in foster care for sure. Right. That's, that's super deep. I mean, that, the number of kids we've had who've come through that don't have one of those, one of those issues, whether physical abuse, sexual abuse, abandonment issues, or neglect, you know, leading to those abandonment issues is probably, it's probably pretty close to zero. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's across the board.
1: So the next, the next layer. So that, I mean, those are the numbers, those are the hard numbers in terms of what we can glean when we're looking at a kid's background. Right. And, but yet there's, there's kids like that that don't make it to us that have those risk factors and for whatever reason, you know, stay out of trouble, so to speak, or they don't get into enough trouble to to maybe, you know, uh, find their way to foster care. I mean, mean, you don't have to get in trouble, obviously, to get foster care, right? But uh, (laughs) um, so the question is, what's the difference between kids that have these, you know, same factors, yet some, um, you you know, don't penetrate into the system, whether it's foster care or corrections. And so I'm going to kind of give you my thoughts on that. That's less um, seated in any kind of data or research that you could, that you could get your hands on. So um, I, I think in societies, societies, you know, back to the be- beginning of time that there's, there's this need unfortunately to identify a group of people that are in and a group of people that are out. And you see that quite a bit, um, e- even in basic things. And I think, unfortunately, it's when you're looking at one kid versus the next kid um, and you get that label foster child, well, then I automatically start spinning ideas and thoughts in people's heads, right? School teachers, um, police officers, a a lot of people then start having these preconceived notions about who this kid is and and what they're about. And are they really worth the investment? Because that's, I think that's really what it's about. There's a there's a, uh, an organization here in my town in Salem, Oregon called the Ike Box. And that's how they really kind of uh, sum up what's going on with kids is that when when you have the space and the ability to invest in a child, then that child will then build upon that investment and return that back to their community. But when kids for whatever um, don't have the space and the, and the people around them either choose not to invest in them or they aren't capable of investing in them. That's when things go awry. And so that's, that's the way that they, they, they talk about those kids as divested youth because the label infers the, the solution, which is to invest in them. And the organization, again, is called the Ike box and the box kind of represents the space uh, where we can start investing in kids. So they have lots of programs that are, that are focused and, and dedicated to that. And they, started that journey as foster parents. And so that I'll let them tell their story at some point. Jason, um, I won't steal their win, but they have an incredible story uh, about their journey as foster parents and how they turned that into the Ikebox and ha- are doing great things in the community. So I really like that idea. But again, back to my second kind of uh, idea is for some reason, society says, these kids are worth our investment and these kids are not. Right And the ones that are not are the ones that again wind up in foster care they wind up in in you know juvenile, they wind up in state level corrections, and they wind up in in prison and I think some of that is based out of our human condition of 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 wanting to you know dissect people into the good ones and and the bad ones.
0: That's an interesting theory because. You know, you mentioned how how people like to have those that are in and out, and all you have to do is spend about five and a half seconds on Facebook, right. and, and you can see that. I mean, it's it's this dichotomy of you have to be this or that. You're either Republican or a Democrat. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the simplest one. You're either pro gun or or, or anti gun. Mm-hmm. You're either pro life or pro choice. You're you're either this or that. It's it seems to be a real struggle to have a third real option that involves a whole lot of thought process. But you see, people really kind of consciously choose to pull themselves into dichotomous choices, right? And I think you—I think that is that, that has to have a, a deep. Well, I'm not the person to say it for sure, obviously, because my psychology degree expired a long, long <laughs> time ago. <laughs> because I think I had ch- child psych 101 in college mm-hmm. 20 years ago. That's about all I got going on. Yeah. But 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 I see I see that in just watching humans that seems to be a huge piece of it. So that's interesting that 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 kind of builds all the way into, into the world that we're talking about with kids in foster care. Sure.
1: And then I'm also a believer that, you know, the the internal vision that you have for yourself is what you ultimately attract to yourself in this world. So if you grew up, I mean, I'm thinking of probably one of the most, heart-wrenching stories that I've come across in my career. And, you know, and I, I estimate that I've, I've seen in the thousands of kids in my career in 21, in 21 years. I think that's, that's a reasonable estimate. Um, but so one of the most heart-wrenching stories is a young man who was born to a drug addicted mom and he was born way premature. And so he was in the NICU and at about the four month mark, he had grown enough and, and stabilized enough that he could Uh, go home and they had to call mom and track mom down to let her know that her baby boy was ready to come home. And to let that sink in. I mean, I have two boys and one was born, um, a couple weeks early. Um, and there was no way that you could have, you know, ripped mom or dad away from that that hospital or the hospital room, right? Absolutely. And so this is how this young man was was brought into this world, um, where he, other than the nurses there, he had no, you know, contact with with um, the people that brought him into this world. And so that's the way that and, and by the way, here's a fast fact. If you're if your first year of life is is done well, well enough, then your resilience for the rest of your life is pretty stable. Okay. But if you're, if your first year of life isn't so well, then there's, there's not a whole lot that can be done to, to boost your resilience categorically. Right. And that's kind of a, a shocking, you know, statistic that we don't throw around quite a bit uh, because it's kind of daunting. Right. Um, it's kind of in the, realm of the uh, uh, versus childhood experiences, uh, survey that's out there as well. But, um, but your internal vision, right? So that's the way that you've been brought into this world. And then you have this messaging being pumped into you, right? Cause when kids go to school as foster kids, everybody knows that, right? I mean, oh, yeah. teachers know that principals know that if, you know, if all of a sudden you show up and you're in the third grade, where have you been kindergarten, first and second grade, um, so this messaging starts, starts you know, um, getting heaped on a young person, uh, in, you know, through their formative years of I'm less than, I'm not like the other people, my parents, for whatever reason, didn't care about me or whatever those things are, then you start believing those messages and that becomes your internal vision. And then because of that, that's what you start attracting uh, to yourself is this, this you know, dark version of yourself that um, really didn't have anything to do with you. It had to to do with, with the messages that people, you know, put on you through, through the early phases of your life.
0: Wow. That's a little bit of a daunting thought right there in and of itself, because, you know, we have a, we have a little guy with us right now whose first year of life is the horrifying stories of the world, right? His um his mom was was addicted, well, still is, to the best of my knowledge. Um, she's kind of a, a halfway family member, and his first year was really difficult. And I mean, to the point where, at one year old, he had already been in our house probably for a quarter of his life. She would call and and we'd go pick him up, and he'd hang out with us, you know, while she was out doing what she does. But <clears throat> when he finally came into state care, the judge ordered a a, a drug screen. And they did a hair follicle test that goes back three months, and the list of things that he had been positive for were really high. Wow! I mean, I think it was it was weed, coke, heroin, meth, and oxys, and that was at one. Wow! And and as you probably well know, you know, a drug screen doesn't always catch that that single use, right? Right. So there was enough in his system to make it into a hair follicle of each one of those. That's a terrifying thought. Right. Yeah. You know, especially for a kid at one. And so, you know, I know his first year was difficult, but you know, probably a quarter of it was spent with us. It, probably just an interesting, interesting case study for a lot of people, but kind of a terrifying, you know, number to, to look at and think that that's, that's his reality. That's the reality that we're stepping into with him. Right. So, yeah, that, that's an interesting story. I also want to talk, you know, Nick, I, we talked a little bit in the past and, and I know you had your own experience with a foster care system inside of your family to some extent sure um do you care to talk about that a little bit
1: yep so i think all things being considered i was lucky to um i mean i i again i don't want to um demonize the foster care system at all um, but yeah I, I I was spared being placed in the foster care because my grandparents at the time were able to take me in I, I'm the oldest of all the kids amongst you know my family and whatnot so um, my mom was a was a wild child um, she uh, I this, I think if I remember the story right she uh, ran away from home and she was like 16 or 17 years old. We were in on the West coast. I think maybe they were in California at the time and she made it all the way into New York and then made it all the way back to um, Colorado. And this would have been in the mid seventies and got back to, like I said, the Midwest before she finally broke down and called home and, and, and needed help. <laughs> so, wow, yeah. <laughs> so she was, she was the wild child. Um, Lots of stories. And, you know, my, my, my family, my family of origin is, is um, those criminogenic risk factors, right? There, there's lots of those things that are present in in our family. Um, Adversive childhood experiences. You know, when I take that um, for myself, you know, I, 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 peg out in terms of um, high risk category. Um, so um, I went to go live with my grandparents. My mom went into the military and that was kind of the, kind of the last hope that she was going to get go in the military. And then when she got out, she was going to take care of me. So she actually found her way to get discharged by getting married at the time and got out of the military and and didn't take, well, I think she tried to take me back. Uh, That didn't really work out um, all that well. And I would have been maybe one one or two, something like that, um, and then my little brothers came along. So I'm I'm born in '77. Um, my next brother was born in '85, and my next brother was born in '90. Um, and then I have another one that was born in 2000. So that's the spread that that we are aware of in terms of uh, progeny that are out there. So
0: wow, that's quite quite the spread.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so the other three brothers all um at some point in time were placed in foster care um and some of that foster care was with my grandmother while i was and my grandmother that raised me uh, while i was finishing up college and so that's kind of where the uh, my biological mom really kind of imploded for the last time and never really recovered um was during that phase so when my middle brother was probably just going into junior high. And then my other little brother was, you know, pretty young, um, uh, three to five years old, five or six years old, something like that. So, but yeah, so, so both of those um, brothers on my mom's side um, have, have foster care experience. Um, the one went all the way to juvenile corrections and then the middle one, and then has been in and out of, Uh, adult prison and adult um, psychiatric placements um, in and out, you know, on a, on a regular basis. Uh, My younger little brother, he actually was the one, when I was on your show um, here in in our area, he was one of the first cases that got elevated to uh, what Oregon, or at least in Salem, they call it forever home model. Right. And so instead of moving kids from home to home, they, homes in various communities in our, in our city, and then move, um, care providers in when that need comes around. So the kids don't have to go to new schools. They don't have to get adjusted to new routes, um, new communities. Um, they bring, um, different care providers in when, when, when that need arises. So he was one of the first cases to get elevated into, into that scenario. And, um, was on their board of directors, um, after he, what you know, aged out 18, 19 years old, uh, joined the guard and was deployed in Northern Iraq, um, uh, purple heart recipient, all that. Uh, but still, you know, those, the, the things that he experienced, the abuse that he experienced still dogs him to, to this day. He's been in a l- little bit of trouble this last, um, uh, this last year that, you know, forced him out of a career and whatnot. So he's he's still trying to figure things out. And I think a lot of that stems back to um, the early childhood experience that I was spared because I went to go live with my grandparents that uh, both of my other little brothers, you know, definitely uh, were impacted in a, in a negative way uh, based on the childhood that they were given.
0: You know, I, <clears throat> we were talking earlier about, about you know, the, all the numbers and the kids in care and and you know you see the struggles that your own brothers went through, and you know in the nurture versus nature conversation, I'm convinced that the the true answer is yes, both. Right, <laughs> yeah. part of it is has to do with where you come from, your biology. Part of it has to do with what you experience as as a as a kid and as an adult. Really, both. Um, <clears throat> so, how would you say that that you know it's possible for you to? To have that same have a connection to the same the same entity you know you 're dealing with corrections, but from the other side, when you both kind of came from the same place, um, do you think that your connection with your grandparents and then being raised by your grandparents, a, a biological um, member of your family really stepping in to take care of that for you as a young kid, did that really help you out a lot, Do you think? <clears throat> You know,
1: I've had to sift through that because of the training and and the profession that I'm in, right? You can't, you can't be a counselor and uh, without doing your own work. So I've definitely have been forced uh, multiple times to kind of sift through that and, and wrestle with it and, and come to some conclusions. So I definitely have that. I think it's a ever evolving project, but so yeah, nature versus nurture. Yes. The answer is yes. (laughs) Um, I think even within, within, you know, sibling systems, people are wired very differently, right? And so you, you, can, you can take, somebody actually did a study about this where they take famous people like Henry Ford, for example, had sisters and brothers and they would um, recount things that he said, oh, this happened in our family or in my life or my childhood. And then they would talk to people that were either related to him, sibling wise or close friends, and they would say that never happened you know, I don't, I don't know where, where that came from that, you know, that absolutely didn't happen. And so um, so I think there is something that is unique to every person, even within a family system. I mean, I think about my pastor um, at one point in time, uh, he'll had an older brother and, you know, one really is kind of estranged from his family and really blames that a lot on his father. And then my pastor friend, really saw his father as doing the best that he could and had, had a lot of grace and forgiveness for his father and therefore much closer to, um, you know, to, to, his parents. And so, you know, I think the individuals in the family because of their wiring, um, can, can experience the exact same things and, and have very different conclusions, um, of it purely because of the genes that they were, they were handed. So in, in my case, you know, just because I went to go live with my grandparents didn't necessarily mean that I didn't experience some of the same things, right? Because it was my grandparents that, that were responsible for my mom as well. And so I definitely saw um, domestic violence. I saw, um, you know, I used to tell people that I'm cut from the same cloth as a serial killer because of the the psychological torture that I, that I endured. And, you know, I've seen, Christmas tree full of lights going out the front door. I've seen Thanksgiving dinner go down the garbage disposal before anybody took a bite. I mean, I've have seen some um, crazy things. Now, I was I I wasn't necessarily physically abused. I can remember a couple times where maybe I I got swatted on the face or or the rear end. Again, I was born in '77, so these were weren't things that would have automatically um, caught the, the attention of the
0: authorities at the time, but, you know, I I was was, also born in 77, Nick, and I can agree with that. And my dad was a police officer,
1: (laughs) right. Um, but I wasn't hit with objects, you know, I wasn't whipped with a belt or, or those types of things. And, um, and my grandparents were obviously older. They were born in 32 and 34. Um, and so I was thinking about that other, the other day, I think if my timeline is right, um, I'd be about my age now, maybe a little bit older and taking in a, a newborn. So I was, I was having that realization the other day the situation that my grandparents were in, um, but you know, I, you know, I'm half Mexican, right. And so um, was grown up with a message that I'm a half breed Mexican. That's never going to be, you know, amount to anything and people are always going to be thinking that I'm stolen from them. And so that was kind of the messaging that was pumped into me um, in my formative years that, just until about three or four years ago, I don't think I completely uprooted out of, out of my, my being. So, uh, but yeah, definitely saw some crazy stuff in terms of domestic violence. And, uh, my, you know, my grandfather was a powerful man. Um, he held a, a position in, in federal government. He was a federal meat inspector and you wouldn't think that that wields much power, but it definitely does. When you can go into a meat plant and and shut down operations right now just because you said so, and uh, uh, so he was a uh, vindictive uh, person. He was much bigger than me. Even you know, um, I'm only five ten. He was you know six two. And um, you know, I remember he used to uh, you know at the dinner table. He used to uh, his funny thing was to you know, quote the Bible, but then put his spin on it because he was God, you know? So he would train me up. He would say, though I walk through the Valley of the shadow of death, he would point to me and he would say, I would fear, I feel fear, no evil. Then he'd point to me. And then I would say, because I'm the toughest son of a bitch in the Valley. (laughs) Right. So, um, and as funny as that might've been around the, the kitchen or the dinner table, that was really, you know, his, his, um, mantra for life there was nobody tougher than him and, and if you wanted to take your shot at it you know, and then go go right ahead right and um, that isn't always a bad thing but it isn't always the most developmentally appropriate approach for for things as well so um, but for whatever reason you know I just kept moving forward and I didn't I my resiliency was was intact enough or you know I was blessed with it enough to, to not have some of those things impact me like they did my little brother. Now they saw other things. They saw, you know, bio mom, you know, filtering through uh, boyfriends and husbands. And my mom was officially married nine times as far as I can track um, myriad of, of boyfriends and, 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 you know, drugs and parties and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's what they, um, were exposed to where I didn't get exposed to, to, to that side of it. Um,
0: that's quite the story. Yeah. It, it's interesting though, as, as you mentioned that, I think a, a lot of pieces of that kind of mirror the story that my wife grew up with. So, you know, I, I've seen from the spouse side, some of those effects. And it's interesting that, you know, in my wife's family, she grew up, I, I think her mom, I think she's on marriage five right now, um, you know, but there was a lot of drugs, a lot of party and a lot of that, that same sort of stuff that she grew up in. And when you look at her siblings, it's interesting that the split that so many of them grew up with the idea that I will never be like that. I will never do to my kids what was done to me. Right. But there there's one of the one of the siblings who's currently struggling with uh with substance abuse. And as long as I've known him, he's been struggling with some sort of substance abuse. And most recently it's really elevated into some of the harder stuff. Um I think I think meth is a current Mm -hmm. issue, you know, that and it's caused all those same sorts of problems. And I can't quite figure out, I can't put my finger on the one thing that that decides for a kid that I'm going to go against the, my history instead of I'm going to continue my history, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's one of those pieces I would love to figure out because if you could teach that to a kid, sure. if you could instill that piece, you know, and I don't know if that's the resilience that's the closest thing I've come to, but I'm not real certain if that's it. Yeah. And
1: I, you know, and I've seen that a lot too, Jason, in, in, in my career and actually, you know, and, it was representative within the three of us and, you know, my brothers. So, um, when we, when we parole a kid in our system and oftentimes we're paroling them to, you know, a lower level of care and oftentimes like a residential care or in foster care. Um, if, if a kid runs from, from the program, you know, more than half the time, where they run to is home, right? They're, they're running back to to bio mom's house or bio dad's house, e- even when those homes were, they experienced their abuse, right. And, and their neglect. And, um, so that was always, that's always a puzzling thing. Like why would you go back to the place where, um, you know, those people, you know, abused you and neglected you, abandoned you and whatnot. And, Uh, this is where, again, I get to throw, you know, theory on there and and give you my take on it, because I've thought about it quite a bit. And a lot of it just comes out of what I saw with my little brother. So if, if you take my middle brother, he got to see bio mom during a phase when things were actually pretty okay. So the family during this phase really kind of thought that our mom had you know, finally gotten on track and, you know, things were going to be good. We, we wouldn't have to worry about her like we, like we did uh, prior to this. So meaning she was working for the post office, which was, you know, a pretty good job. She was working the overnight shift. um, And so she was home, you know, during the day for the boys. Um, She was doing Cub Scouts with them. She was you know, sewing uh, Halloween costumes, she was baking and doing, you know, she was kind of super mom in it and making up for maybe some lost time. And so my middle brother got to experience that. Now, most of that, so my younger, my youngest brother got to experience that from birth to about, like I said, three years. And so, and then things really kind of went south. So uh, my middle brother would always go home. He would always find his way to, to bio mom. My younger little brother, he really didn't have anything, didn't want to have anything to do with her. Right. And I think, and that was kind of my, my deal as well. I didn't really know this lady. Like, yes, she was my, my bio mom, but we really didn't have um, much of those experiences that would bond mother to child, but my middle little brother did. Right. And so my theory there kind of extrapolating from that to the kids that I see is uh, I think if kids saw, you know, stable phases um, in, in a bio parent, that they they hold on to this wish that it'll it'll that'll return, right? And so that's where the that's where the the grace upon grace comes, uh, oftentimes between a a, a child and, and and a bio parent where things have gone wrong, because I believe that they're they're clinging to this this future of when. Um, mom and or dad or mom and dad together are going to get back on track and then they can have the life that they once knew and experienced. Now, if you didn't have that um, exposure or you didn't have that experience, then I think you're less likely to cling to that as ever being a possibility. Right. And so maybe you just, you uh, just accept that way of life as what's normal. And that's another piece too. I think oftentimes kids will, um, come into our system and get exposed to lots of different, um, perspectives. And then they start thinking like, like, you mean this, this isn't normal. This, this, what I experienced in my home isn't what, what all of you experienced. And so then things will start kind of unfolding for them. And we do see a lot of kids that will say, as much as I want to go home, I I know that I can't, that that environment just isn't, isn't good for me. And it hurts me. And I've got to be able to tell them that in a way that it doesn't do damage or limits the amount of damage, but we do see a lot of kids that, um, not from a place of anger or spite or, or vengefulness, but just from a place of looking at it for what it is. I know that I can't, I can't go back there. Right. And so we kind of help them through that process and help help the families as well, kind of accept that, you know, when this person gets out that, you know, they're going to go to independent living or they're going to move to a different part of the state. And, you know, they're they're going to be enrolled in college and do these things. So that's what I see. That's kind of my, my theory and take on how some of those things unfold.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. You mentioned something a little bit earlier I did want to touch on, too. Um, you mentioned that there's a faith component in your life. Do you see that as being one of the things that helps helps kids get through their struggles? Because as you talked about that again, you know, <laughs> it's interesting how much of that I've, I've heard similar things from my own wife that that really just bear out that that story and the faith component. Though, how does that piece kind of fit into your life, and do you see that making a difference in the lives of of kids that that you deal with?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's another one of those facts that's hard to, to dismiss is that when you have kids that are involved in a faith tradition, the likelihood of them um, getting into trouble is is significantly reduced compared to kids that don't have a faith tradition. And it doesn't have to be, you know, any one religion, um, one organization. It's just what the numbers bear out that if you are connected to um, a faith tradition, you know, that that's a protective factor. And so, again, you know, so my grandparents were raised in the thirties, right. Or they were born in the thirties. They're just coming out of the depression and they were the type of people that went to church because quote unquote, good people went to church. That makes sense. So we were the, we were the, you know, I went through a long phase of going to church Sunday mornings, but again, like I said, um, my grandfather let us know who God was and right. And he, he, you know, and he, he would bless us with his presence every day in, in, in his house and in, in, in him. Right. And so uh, there was a lot of mixed messaging for me around that. Like, you know, I'm, I'm reading about, and i listening Sunday school, right. The felt board and all that kind of stuff growing up. Um, but then I would get a very different take um, about um, who God was and um, you know, what, what the power of prayer really was. Like if, if there was a God and if prayer worked, why do I, why do I endure these types of things? But for whatever reason we, I kept going to church, you know, and, and from, through my middle school era, church was a, a way for me to play basketball, organized basketball, um, and kind of organized basketball when the community, um, uh, opportunities were winding down church league basketball would, would kind of be um, in full force there. And so that's kind of one thing that, that kept me going. And then I went to Christian schools, um, through this as well. Um, except for one year I went to public school. And so, you know, I did, I was immersed in, in, in church, in, in the Christian tradition. And I think because of that, I was exposed to, again, um, you know, in my, in my high school years, I didn't spend a whole lot of time at home. So my, my grandfather, um, left us on Christmas Eve in my freshman year and never came back. And so, um, I really didn't spend a ton of time at home. I was, I was, you know, basically adopted by another family, uh, spending as much time with them, dinners with them, vacations with them and and whatnot. And, uh, and once I got my car, then I was kind of on my own and, and whatnot. But, um, but I would say, yeah, that um, you know, when I look back on things in my life where they it could have went very different in a negative way, um, I, I really can't attribute that to anything that I consciously did. I attribute that to, um, you know. the the intervention from, um, from God and people that had to have been praying for me and whatnot, because it wasn't because that was the decision that I you know thought was best. It just didn't ever unfold. Um, you know, and, there, and there's some things that, um, where when I came into work, you know, as, as a fresh into the career, I was 21 years old, And I had five kids that were older than me, uh, because of the way our state works in Oregon and just listening to the things that they were into and the things that they were doing were some of the same things that I was into and doing. And so I kind of, it was kind of a, a wake up call that I could have easily been here, you know, at McLaren, which is our youth correctional facility in Oregon, the biggest one. So, uh, but yeah, you know, faith did play a role, um, for sure. And, um,
0: yeah, I'll leave it at that how do you, how do you message that to a kid that, you know, there's something bigger out there, whether that's, you know, uh, your religion of choice or or some other form of spirituality, you know, how how do you message, get that message into a kid that to where they can understand that there's something bigger out there. And do you think that's the, the piece of that, of that uh, faith-based component that helps kids get to the place in their own head where they think there's a reason for them to go out and do the right thing?
1: Yeah. And it, it's, It's consistency. And this is where action speaks louder than words. So you have to, you have to expose a kid like that to as many things as possible. Cause it's that, it's that repetition of exposure, um, that by the numbers, something's going to click or catch. But this is where I'm talking about, um, the investment model where, um, if, even if in a, in a well-meaning system, you know, we give two or three opportunities for investment, two or three exposure points. And if that doesn't click with the kid, then we throw up our hands and say, well, that's not going to, nothing's going to work for this kid. Well, I mean, you're dealing with a kid that needs to see it before they're going to believe it. Right. And so you have to be prepared to do the long haul investment and exposure. So like in our system, uh, our, our facility has almost 400 volunteers that are active, meaning that these are people from that are coming in to spend time with these kids. And they're bringing in, you know, their life experience. And I remember we had a guy who volunteered on my living unit way back when, and his thing was um, uh, tying flies for fly fishing right? He came in and said, I'd like to show the boys how to to tie flies. And I'm like, oh, good luck with that. These guys, you know, but for whatever reason, there was four or five kids that just glommed on to that. And that, that's all they, they would talk about in between. And they would practice and whatnot. And they would just wait for this guy to come back in so he could look at their flies and, you know, improve their techniques. And these kids weren't able to go out and try them out. Right. They were, they were watching a facility. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you would have asked me back then in my younger years, if, if I thought that was going to be effective, I was sitting this the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But now in my, you know, 21th year, I get what's going on there. Right. Is that you, you never know what's going to work and you just have have to keep exposing you have to, it's the repetition and we're 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 working ourselves out of a hole with the kids too and this is for my staff i i try to um, paint that picture for them right if you if you have your your normal kid and your normal family right well you're dealing with you know Semi flat ground, so to speak, right? Yeah, there's going to be some bumps in the road, and there's going to be some rocks, and you might find a pothole, right? But those are things that the typical family and system can help a kid overcome, right? But when you're dealing with a kid that's been in a system, um, and I, and it's also the case, Jason, that by the time kids reach us, they've been in multiple foster homes, right? You're talking five plus the the highest I've heard is 33 different placements, right? By the time oh, Wow. They Yeah, and so you're not dealing with flat ground, right? You're dealing with with this kid's in a hole, right? And our job is to to bring the kid out of the hole just to get back to flat ground, right? Because that's where the 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 work can actually occur. But again, a, a, a kid's so far down in the hole, and he'll fight you, or she'll fight you. She'll they'll fight you to stay in that hole, right? Because Number one, they don't know what flat ground looks like. Or number two, they've given up on it long ago. Right. And so that's that's a hard lesson for for people doing the work, at least on our, you know, the facility to realize that, you know, that uh, but the only thing that will get a kid out of that hole is that commitment, that repetition, that constant exposure to like what you were saying, this world is bigger than this. You're only 16 years old. Right. And this society will keep you alive till 80 years old. You're 16 you're going to be alive till you're 80, right? There's a, there's a lot of uh, time to go, um, for you to, to, for you to be, uh, relegated to this concept that you're always going to be in this hole. It just doesn't have to be, but you've got to show it to them. You can't just, you can't just expect them to, to get there on their own. Um, it has to be shown to them.
0: You know, you mentioned a couple of times the, uh, the community involvement, um, you know, having a family that, that kind of supported you as you were going through your teen years and then people coming in and working with some of the kids in in the, the youth facility there. And, you know, I have, I have a couple of friends of mine who uh, one of them, my dad met professionally. He has a police officer. His mom called the police department and said, come do something with his child before I abuse him. And my, my dad happened to be the cop who showed up that day and he talked to him and, and the thing was he came from from a hard place. You know, his his dad wasn't involved. His dad had some some issues and um and my dad got a hold of him and got to talk to him and found out he liked hunting, he liked fishing. You know, we're here in the Midwest. That's kind of a, a popular thing and my dad was grew up doing those things and and I grew up doing those things with my dad and he said, "Hey, you know, get your stuff together and I'll take you with me." And turns out that me and my my buddy Josh, we grew up from I'd had to think real hard trying to remember how old I was when I met him you know we were probably about the fifth grade or so when I met him and today I can I can take you right to his house you know he's he's now married Um, he's he has a good job he actually became a police officer for a little while himself and you know but he decided that wasn't the line of work he wanted to be in and he's been in the construction trades for years he has three kids of his own two boys and a little girl and his life is completely turned around. And I've seen right. the difference that, that I can trace back to that moment where he met my dad. Right. And I've got another friend of mine who we grew up across the street from. And I knew I knew little Stevie from the time he was little Stevie, right? <laughs> he, he doesn't answer to Stevie anymore. But, uh, you know, he, he him and his family moved out of state and his parents had a divorce and they had a lot of issues. I don't know all the details exactly. But I know that at a very young age, before he graduated high school so at some point, He ended up out on the streets. He was running with a gang down there. Um, He was, you know, using and selling and all that. And he showed back up at about, hes probably about 18 when he showed back up at at our house one day and said, Hey, I got myself in some trouble down there. I'd like to try and turn my life around. And my dad took him into our house. And today, if you search his first and last name on Google, you will get a picture of him. He's somebody in his world of work. Um, He's, you know, he's got a lot of, of things that he's done now. And you know, most notably, he raises his own family, and he has his kids—a um, little boy and a little girl—and he's he's a great dad now, and completely changed his life around. And I will—I think that you can look at back at that and see that the successes they've had can be directly linked to a member of the community who reached out and said, "Hey, why don't you come over here? We're going to love on you a little bit. We're going to show you a few things. We're going to just just treat you like a human." And the the piece where where the community, somebody in the community steps in and says you're worthwhile, yep. you know that appears to be a big a big factor for success in the future. Would you, Would you agree with that? And and why do you think that is? And is there a way that the people who maybe you're you're not ready to be a foster parent because a lot of people aren't? You know, quite frankly, most people aren't wired to do this. And some days I wonder if I am even. Right, but but you know, yeah. at some point there, there's a piece of that 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 can be so beneficial in a kid's life. And have you seen that play out in the people like yourself who've come out of hard places, who've managed to to not continue to stay in that hard place and gotten themselves out of that hole you're talking about?
1: Absolutely. In in our treatment world, we talk about uh, one of our mantras is programs don't change people, people change people. And I think that's true no matter what the, the setting or situation I- I- is, that um, it's really the people that, again, chose to invest in us for whatever reason that, that make the difference. And that's also borne out in our research in, in corrections as well. So when we, when we do get a kid in, we, we, you know, we put them through a battery of assessments and um, one of them is a, you know, the risk needs assessment and a risk factor in there is, is does the child outside of his family of origin have any positive connection to at least one adult? If the kid answers um, yes, I do have a positive connection to a non-family member adult, then that gets uh, checked as a box of, of a protective factor. If the kid answers no, then a check goes in the box as a risk factor. So this takes one positive connection with an adult outside of the the the, the family of origin to check that protective factor box, and so for people who, who have a heart for these types of kids, um, there's lots of ways that you can help check that box as a protective factor. Um, be a reading buddy at school. Um, get involved with, you know, the organizations that are, that are youth and, and kid oriented. Uh, maybe, maybe you can't be a foster care parent, but can you do, can you do some respite care? I mean, can you come in and in white knuckle through a day at a, you know, at a, at a foster home so that the parents can, can, can do what they need to do, get away, get some time away. Uh, so there's, there's lots of opportunities or, you know, look at your youth correctional facilities that are potentially in your area. And can you volunteer there? Right. There's a, there's a lot of ways that you can take a little bit of action, a little bit of investment, a little bit of, of love for your, your fellow human beings and make a huge impact. You just, again, you're never going to know what, what you could do unless you get out there and, and try it. And it, you, You know, it could be the one conversation, it could be the one activity, it could be the one you passing on wisdom that was passed down to you and your family that might click in that kid, and that's all it takes.
0: You know, we talked with a gal, Rebecca Britt from Stable Moments a while back, and she has an equine therapy program that she's been running and she's she's actually kind of um, franchising that out at the moment. And that was one of the things we talked about is she's noticed that the equine therapy where it's very helpful in a lot of ways the horses don't seem to be necessary. And she she's looking at exactly that idea right now is finding ways to connect with a kid, regardless of what they're connecting around. As long as you're connecting with the kid, I think that's, that's a huge piece.
1: Yeah. And my theory there, Jason, um, and this is where I'm, you know, I'm responsible for theory. Um, because when people come around us, they want to know, you know, what we're doing, you know, what, what's our intervention based in. And so, so here, here's my best answer right now is I'm, I'm, I've always been a fan of attachment theory. So that's a whole discipline within the field of, of counseling and psychology. And, you know, people like Eric Erickson kind of on Piaget were on the front end of breaking life development down into stages and in, in attachment theory, but um, I won't, I won't go Uh, too deep into that, but here's what, here's what I think is happening or what needs to happen. Um, Basically what attachment theory says that people need secure attachment in order to have successful lives, right? And secure attachment comes from uh, being able to have positively predictable parents. Meaning when I'm hungry, I'm going to get fed. When I'm hurt, I'm going to get help. When I'm cold, that's I'm going to, somebody's going to help me get warm, those types of things. And you can, you can have, you can predict that in a positive way, right? So that, those are some of the building blocks for um, secure attachment. Now, it's pretty easy to tell that kids that wind up in foster care or kids that wind up in the, the juvenile justice system um, don't have secure attachment. And when you don't have secure attachment, then your outlook on yourself and the world um, is negative, right? Um, I must not be worthy of being protected, uh, and helped and, and cared for, and, and I can't trust this world, um, to do anything. I always got to be on guard. I always have to be vigilant. People are always out to get me and take advantage of me. Um, and those are all in my opinion, products of, um, something other than secure attachment. And again, I won't get into the different, uh, other forms of attachment. So when we are investing in, in kids, um, you know, as foster parents or formal systems in, in corrections, I, that's what I believe our goal is. Our goal is to create what's called earned secure attachment. And that's a that's an anchor point in the in the literature that anybody can can look up. Um, it's it's not a huge um, body of work. Um because it's hard to measure. It's hard to quantify. And that's what gets, you know, uh, traction is things that you can measure and quantify. Um, But that's what I believe is the mechanism that's at play for turning somebody's life around is that you're helping them develop earned secure attachment. And it used to be that if you used to, uh, attachment used to be considered a finite thing, either you were secure attached or you weren't, and there wasn't a whole lot that you can do about it. Uh, But we're finding out that that isn't the case and that, but it it takes, it's hard work. This is where I'm talking about the constant exposure, the constant um, I'm here with you for the long haul. When, when I, when I consult with residential treatment programs and when I've built, From the ground up, some of our living units, um, I tell them, you know, there's there's two points of magic when you're working with these types of kids. And here they are. Treat them like kids, you know, versus treating them like, you know, criminals or treating them like whatever label you want to put on them. Treat them like kids. Right. And by definition, kids learn through a process of trial and error. It right. doesn't matter who the kid is and what, what the setting is. Kids will learn through a process of trial and error, which means that they're going to do incredibly stupid things because they're kids and their brains aren't developed. Right. Um, so don't, oh, yeah. don't to that <laughs> anything other than just being a kid and then don't give up on them. Right. That, that's the second point of magic. If you can build a program, if you can recruit staff, if you can have leadership that buys into those two things, then you can start making a difference in kids' lives. Right. Where, oftentimes our systems are set up to label kids, right? And we start, we start calling them antisocial. we start calling them criminal. We start calling them pathological. And then we, we look at all of their behavior as evidence of those things, rather than just being a kid that was really dumb in that moment. Um, And then we say um, we can only tolerate so much of this behavior before we're going to move you on to the next place, rather than um, once you're here, you're going to be here. And I get it. This is hard, right? I'm not saying this is easy, Um, but then we just condition kids as we move them through the system, we can, we, we reinforce the message, right? The, the kind of the dark internal vision. And we prove to them that people really don't care about them. And once they reach their limit, they're just going to move them on to the next system. So to loop that back around the mechanism that I think that's at play is helping kids develop, earn secure attachment. And then once you have that in place, then you see a lot of rapid growth. You see a lot of rapid change. And again, going back to our last little piece of the conversation, you just don't know when that's going to happen, right? So the constant exposure, um, getting them, uh, in front of people that have something to offer. It could be just one conversation, one trip to the beach, one, uh, hunting excursion. Um, but you've got to be in it for the long haul and, and, and keep the repetition going.
0: Well, I want to, I want to touch on one other thing real quick um my my 14 year old son and i actually had a conversation last night and it, it was interesting because my kids will always tell you dad you're always trying to make a life lesson out of everything and i go <laughs> i know because it's life and you know learn lessons from from every piece of life and, and you'll get right. some wisdom earlier in life and you won't screw yourself up but we right. were talking about character and having character and you know how that's so important for future success, and uh, kind of going, through, I have my own list of things that I tried to, to instill in, in kids. You know, there's some things that I think just for me makes sense that this is the most beneficial things that you can have, you know, simple things like the ability to be honest to, so that you can build trust with people. I think that's important. And, uh, you know, the, just the ability to, to take what you have in your life and reach out and help somebody else where you can. That's another thing that's important. You know, you're, you're putting, putting the yourself out there to to change a world in a, in a better way. And I think that, that helps that that bigger than you mission become developed in your own mind. Um, how would you say, or maybe the better question is what character qualities do you see are, are that you can instill in a child that, that will best serve their future?
1: Sure. Yeah. And I, I built a skill building curriculum, um, from the ground up. And so it's those things that I think are, are, are universal and and needed and that the kids that wind up with, with me and my care, they don't have. Right. And so, um, uh, the curriculum is called Nexus and it's got four components. So here it is. Um, um, it's balance, believe, contribute, and excel. Those are the four components. Um, and then each, in each of those components, there's, um, distinct skill sets that, that, um, that, you know, are filed under there. So, so balance is that ability to handle um, stress in your life, right? And so you have to, you have to be able to, to understand yourself. You've got to know um, the things that are, have the potential that throw you for a loop and you've got to have a plan for those things, right? So how do you, how do you know yourself? And then how do you plan to um, it's kind of basically how do you build up your own resilience, right? So that's balance, how do you make wise choices and when you're when your peer group is saying let's do this thing, um, which for them may not be a big deal, but for you maybe it is a big deal. Maybe it's a point of vulnerability. Right? You've got to know yourself well enough to be able to to make better choices or different choices, and that's all you know. Um, taking care of your body as well. I think that's something that we don't do. Um, with kids in our, I mean, we try in our health classes and whatnot, but it's not really modeled for them. Like, how do you take care of this, this physical organic thing that um, you really need to have in top shape? Otherwise you, you you know, you're, you're vulnerable to a lot of things. So that's balance. Believe is what we just talked about for the most of this conversation is how do you develop a self, uh, a positive self-concept? Because if you don't have a positive self-concept, then You're just going to limit yourself and you're going to not realize and reach your potential, which is the tagline for uh, my program that I work with people. Right. So you've got to have that positive self-concept contribute is this idea that everything that you say or do has the potential and the opportunity to make your immediate environment better or worse. Right. And it's, it's realizing that we are connected to to bigger and bigger systems, whether we want to believe it or not. And we have that ability to impact our environment with our words and our actions. Right. And so, and we need that, that mutual help. So it's valuing the connection with other people. Um, You know, I used to, I, I when, when Obama said, Hey, you didn't build that, you know, I, I didn't believe it, you know, and I actually thought that was, you know, I took a great offense to that when he, when he said that, um, and then, you know, the several years, kind of in my own personal development growth, I've recognized, yeah, it's true, right? I mean, we, no, nobody gets anywhere in this in this life without either somebody paving that that path before us, or somebody investing in us, somebody giving us advice, or so. Valuing connection with other people, I think, is a huge lesson, and especially for kids that wind up in foster care, right? Because part of their survival and their resilience is I don't need other people, right? It's just me against the world. And, it, and that isn't necessarily a bad thing, but if it's the only, if it's your only outlook on life, it's going to run its course and you're going to find yourself in a scenario where you need help. Uh, but you won't ask for it because you have this belief of, you know, I don't need anybody. It's me against the world. And then Excel is the fourth component is you've got to be constantly challenging yourself. You have to embrace that life is a process of, of learning by failure. And so when you, when you have those failure points, you have a choice. You you can, you can, you know, declare defeat and give up, or you can step back from it, take your lumps, see what, uh, what, went right and what went, went wrong and learn from it and commit to, to moving forward. So that's that Excel part that you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't put it into action and don't take steps, you're not really doing anything uh, for yourself. So that's what I would say. And that's the part of, that's the curriculum that I built from the ground up. And, you know, I love it when the staff that are delivering the curriculum say, this really helped me too. I'm like, yeah, it's not just for criminals. It's not just for foster care kids. It's for, it's for everybody. This is what I really believe. Um, if you have those four things dialed in, um, you're going to be doing some, some great things with your life.
0: You know, Nick, you know, what I heard was learning how to handle your stress, developing a positive self image, valuing the connections around you and challenging yourself to be better. Perfect. you know, if, if I look at that and I, I look at the people around me, the people I know, I bet you it's a pretty small percentage of the people that I know that, that do that. Well, even adults, that's gotta be a challenge trying, trying to, to instill that in kids who've had a real negative beginning. Yep. You know, that's but, you
1: got to show it and that's what I tell my staff that are doing it. Like if I could wave a magic wand with anybody that's working with kids they would have those four things dialed in and, it, and, and, and especially the Excel piece, because um, what I tell, what I tell my staff is when, when we get a kid that finds their way and it takes, this in Oregon, it takes quite a bit to come to uh, facility side corrections, right? Um, it's, it's almost like somebody getting a cancer diagnosis. And so a lot of people can kind of relate to that. And the numbers are that we're not very far removed from somebody who has cancer. And what I mean by that is when you get that cancer diagnosis, your doctor is going to ask you to do wholesale life change, right? If you've got to, do something drastically different with your diet. You've got to, you've got to be dedicated to doing these treatments. You've got to be taking these medications, right? You may have to do a career shift, whatever that is, right? There a cancer patient is being asked to do wholesale life change. Well, it's the same thing with these kids when 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 they've been brought in and, and they come into the system, right? We're telling them to start liking school, which most of them hate school. Start liking school. Stop hanging out with these people. Stop doing drugs, right? Um, wholesale life change. But if the staff that are delivering the message are don't like school, they're doing drugs or those things. They're just they're phonies. They're imposters, and that's and, and the kids can smell that from a million miles away. And I think that's a big part of um, what makes some of these interventions and and programs not as effective as they could be is it really is dependent on the person delivering the message. Right. So you're right. There's, uh, you know, uh, there's probably a way too uh, small of a pool to to pull from. Um, But that's why in in my kind of later phase of my career, I'm I'm really more jazzed about investing in the staff because I know that they're going to be the message carriers. Right. So if I can get them um, to, to be looking at their own lives and embracing those four concepts and really pushing themselves. Then when they ask the kids or put it in front of the kids to make wholesale life change, it'll be way more genuine, right? A kid will, will say, okay, if you're doing it, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot as well. So you're right. It's a small pool to pull from for sure.
0: <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's something I find interesting, you know, with our, with our own kids, with our 14 year old and my 12 year old, especially because they're in that age where fair is a big thing. And, and you're right. They can smell phony from a mile away (laughs) and integrity is something that I think is unfortunately really harder to find in today's culture, but we've had those conversations where, you know, somebody mentioned that, you know, Oh, well, well they smoke weed, but, but it's, it's for their diabetes. And I went, hang on, (laughs) hang on, you know, weed for diabetes doesn't make any sense to me. It's going to give you the munchies. And then you're going to eat probably something really unhealthy, which is going to be really bad for your diabetes. Right. And the thing is, is it was a family member who, who they have some, some real connection with. And so it's really easy for them to believe that. And my words have zero effect unless I can look you in the eye and say, look, bud, I am the guy who always tells you the truth. I am the guy who will tell you you're ugly and your mom addresses you funny. If you're ugly and your mom addresses you funny, right? Like, I will tell you the truth even when it hurts because it's the best thing for you. And without having that integrity in the relationship first, nothing I say can, can make a bit of change. Right. And that, that's been a lesson that I've had, had to really learn with the kids, you know, through experience and over time, because man, they, they just, they won't hear you if they don't believe you.
1: They're in that hole, right. What, they've never been able to trust and believe adults or why, why are they going to trust Jason just because he says, you know, just because he says so, right. They have to experience it. They've got to see it.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's been that, that long-term experience that we've had where, where I've been always and and this probably goes back to my childhood and you know because I was raised in in kind of a in a church that that believed that every mistake you made would send you immediately to hell. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of a probably a fear-based thing one of the few fear-based things that turned out positive for me in my life is that I believed that you know 100% honesty and integrity was something that you had to have if you wanted to keep yourself out of hell mm-hmm. and I built that as a young kid. And so today like if I have something to say, it's not going to be a lie. And people know that I do some training with my work. And um, I had one particular guy who uh, who I trained for a while and he just wasn't working out. He had some issues and uh, he didn't want to be there. And when I told I told the boss, I said, look, it's, I'm done with this one. You know, sorry, but I can't do anything more. We're not going anywhere. And I called him in to, to let him go. and And the first words out of his mouth was, because it was he was a, a younger um, black guy and he says well Jason's racist and you know that can be a big thing right that could be dangerous in any corporate setting in, in any kind of company but the, the boss immediately laughed because they know me they know me well and they know that that the level of my honesty and integrity and they also happen to know that we're a foster family that you know I don't fit any real racial profile number one I'd have a hard time being racist against somebody because I I pick out the character qualities in my face and you'll find five different races there maybe. And, and our family also is so, so dang colorful and they know that they've seen that over time and they know who I am at heart and they believe in the integrity of who I am. And if they ask me a question, I'll tell them the truth. You know, I'm not going to lie to save my own skin. I mean, that's, that's the worst thing you can do it could be because you, once you build that people believe that about you. And that's something I try so hard to build in kids is that honesty and integrity piece, because I don't think with, without having that as your foundation, I don't know if any of the rest of it will really matter because the kids just won't hear it. Yeah. And that's, that's been a strong thing in my life.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's, it's also a process, you know, honesty, integrity is, you know, values that are obviously important to you and, and they've served you well. And I think it's also, we need to, have a process ready to go for these kids to help them find and discover the values that, that are most meaningful um, for them as well. So uh, I, I don't think you can start too young with, with doing a values clarification process with, with people. Um, uh, it's my belief that, that, that those, I, I think we're born into this world with an innate sense of justice, right. And that comes from a, um, a theory of, of family counseling, right. That, um, uh, we're born in this world with an innate sense uh, of justice. And we that's why we recognize those violations against us, right? Because if that wasn't imprinted on our soul and being d- just by nature of being born in this world, um, then we wouldn't necessarily have the reaction to uh, abuse and neglect, right? So we, we come into this world with an innate sense of justice. And I think that there's probably um, values that are, that are unique to, to everybody. Um, and so being able to help a a, a young person through values, clarification, I think it's pivotal.
0: Wow. Well, I appreciate your time here today, Nick. Um, I I know I've taken up a lot of it. Um, Real quick one, one last question I, I like to ask people is, is, you know, and you come from a really unique place as somebody who not only went through some, some trauma and struggles as a young person, somebody who found his way out of that, and now helps kids who are who found their way into that problem place you know you 've seen a lot of different sides of this situation what 's one piece of advice that you can give what what 's one piece of wisdom that that 's hard for anybody else to to be able to have grabbed a hold of and that you could share with with the listeners to uh, to help them either in their own lives or or raising their kids and foster kids and, and adoptive kids and and reach out to them and and really make a difference in the way they see their world?
1: Wow, that's a big question. Um, I definitely could, could go a lot of different directions, but what's coming up in me right now would be that I really believe that regardless of the hand that's been dealt to you, I mean, we all get dealt a different hand. There is somebody who is like you that has made it right. That has made it out, that has a path. And I want people to know that if one person can make it, you can make it as well. But what it's going to take is for you to believe that about yourself and to ask others for help. I think, I think those are the two things, right. That, um, Everybody gets dealt a hand. Some hands are, are better off than others, but I guarantee you there's somebody that had a similar hand as you that is, that has made it, that has created the life that, that, that they wanted for themselves that has overcome all the hurdles and obstacles. And if they can do it, so can you, you just have to believe it and you've got to be willing to ask for help to get there.
0: That's great. Yeah. That ask for help piece, right? <laughs> Dude, <it took laughs> we're, me- we're not a, We're not great at it.
1: 33 years to, or longer than that, 38 years. I'm 42, right? And so (laughs) I went way too long before I really started asking for help.
0: Well, I really appreciate your time on here today, Nick. We'll post any links that you have that you want us to share in the show notes. Oh, yeah. Also, if you've gained any value out of this, um, Nick Satello happens to have his own podcast, The Upgraded Life episode there's an episode on there where you'll hear a voice similar to mine and my wife's. You'll get to actually hear her on there. Absolutely. But yeah, Nick's got a great podcast. Um, I've been, I've been following along with that one as well. So if you guys have a chance look up the upgraded life with Nick Satello and, and, uh, and check him out and I'll try and make sure I put that in the, you know, get links to that in the show notes and everything. So it's really easy to find. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, guys, now that you've made it to the end, do me a favor. Go back to iTunes, look up The Upgraded Life with Nick Sotello and follow that one. Subscribe to it. Leave him a rating and review. You won't regret it. While you're there, make sure you leave us a rating and review as well. Five-star reviews really help the show get found. Also, if you have a story that you would like to have highlighted on our show, please contact us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. We love to hear stories that are inspiring and help others. So be sure and reach out to us if you have something that you think you'd like to share or if you know anyone who would. You can also find Nick on Instagram at The Upgraded Life as well. We look forward to talking to you guys again next week. And as always...